My name is Umer. And I'm Karma. You're tuning in to a Patreon-exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast. In this segment, we're going to continue the discussion we've been having with Justin Podur about his recently published novel, Siege Breakers. Welcome back to Oats for Breakfast, Justin. Thank you. All right, so what were we talking about? <laughs> Just now, we're, we were talking about uh, talking about the... not like writing a novel. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and what that entails what that takes um what your process is like so i have a very different take on this than a lot of uh, art artists that are out there um so for me it's it's very systematic and it's very analytic and it's very methodical so i have taken a lot of writing classes and i've um, read a lot of books about writing and i think of it as something that you can learn how to do and then do so I feel the same way about political analysis. I feel the same way about, you know, martial arts, whatever. Whatever it is, you it's a pursuit. You figure out how it's done, and then you learn how to do it, and you practice. So with this book, um, I've been writing fiction since I was a teenager. It's just not been very good. <laughs> but uh, I haven't really wanted to put it out until, you know, the past, I don't know, five or six years. But so basically... I, th- I, I talk about it. I can talk about it in terms of the differences between writing a political essay or a political book and a novel. Hmm. And one of the one of the main differences is um, you could make an argument that nonfiction should also have an element of making you this drive to want make you want to read the next sentence. But like that's what fiction is about. Fiction is about like withholding information so that there's a payoff and giving clues. So that when the payoff comes, it's like, oh yeah, I see that you set that up, and uh, it's all, it was all there, and I saw some of those details, but I didn't see what you were gonna do with it all. And that's especially with thrillers or mysteries, mm-hmm. you want to do uh, clues. So, like one of my favorite um, movies, I really like the Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey uh, Jr. And there's like a really big, the second movie, Game of Shadows, where he takes Moriarty on. And there's a really long, like four or five minute long reveal at the end of that movie. Have you guys seen it? Have either of you guys seen it? No. Oh, it's very good. They're playing chess. Okay. So Moriarty and Holmes are playing chess. And then they're playing chess on an actual board. There's other stuff going on in another room. And then, you know, these guys are so smart that at one point they both get up from the board and they keep calling chess moves. So it's like... They keep saying where the moves are going to go. And at the same time, Holmes is revealing how the whole, throughout the whole movie, he's been gathering clues and things and that he's put this thing in, this thing in motion that where Mori, all of Moriarty's money is going to be basically confiscated by the police, by the, you know, London police. And, uh, it does this, these, you know, detective shows, they all do this. They have these flashbacks, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you see Moriarty like stabbing Holmes and Holmes is like stealing the notebook while he's getting stabbed. And, you know, he's looking, you see him look at this little book and you're like, oh yeah, they did linger. The camera did linger on that little book in the corner of Moriarty's office for an, a little bit of extra time. And I thought, oh, whatever. And so that's, um, that's one kind of technique, which you don't really do in 
nonfiction, right? You don't really say like, you don't really set up a big reveal. You're trying to make an argument and you're trying to be as clear as possible. And in a way you're trying, you're not really trying to like foreshadow or um, you're just trying to like take somebody through a a set of ideas or or logic. Um, And then there's like the idea of characters, which Again, like some of these techniques apply to narr- what's called narrative nonfiction, mm-hmm. which is basically where they use fiction techniques to write nonfiction. Right. So, like, there are people that do that. Um, my nonfiction writing is not like that. It's very, you know, it's analytical. And, but um, so, characters, what's a character? There's a great, a really good book called Story. And there's the author's Robert McKee, and he writes for screenwriters. And so he talks about, there's like a lot of people have this dichotomy between the characters and the plot. And he says, that's a false dichotomy. Character, really, it's not traits. It's not like, oh, my character has dark skin or my character has uh, dresses in fine suits. A character is the choices that you make under pressure. So if you have two good options, like I can take my kid to for ice cream or I can take my kid to the park. Um, What you decide between those two tells you about your character. Or Mm -hmm. if you have two terrible options, right? Sidge Breakers is full of those. Mm -hmm. But it's like those dilemmas, you know, yeah, at the beginning, very early in the book, Nasser is trying to rescue this guy. And he says, if I go through here and the Israelis bomb us, a lot of civilians will die. If we go the longer way, we could lose time that we may need, you know, to rescue this guy. And he, that's a terrible choice. And that choice is what tells you what kind of person Nasser is, Mm -hmm. right? How he decides between those two things. And so if you have a series of choices, all of which have consequences, and then those consequences are for other people who then make their choices and those consequences, that is a plot. That's the plot. The characters' choices relative to each other constitutes a plot. So when you're trying to to design a fiction, when you're trying to write a, a fictional story or a novel, you make this list of scenes of things that happen, and you say, okay, what what are the what's the dilemma? What's the choice? What are the consequences? Who makes cho- what choices in response to those? And then the story kind of rolls along. And I outline it all before I write. So I, I, I knew every scene, I actually drew pictures, <laughs> a, little, a little box with a little picture and, and notes on what happens in each scene before. And, and as I was writing it, things do change. Mm-hmm. But, but I had a map of everything. And it started with actually the very last scene, which I'm not going to spoil. But the last scene was the first thing that came to me. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, well, what if? And I mean, I, I can give you the real world analog, which is like Gilad Shalit was this Israeli tank gunner that was uh, taken prisoner um, before one of the big wars. I think it was the 2008 war. Um, and I, I thought, like, what if this was all orchestrated by him? What if he what if he was like a mastermind and got himself kidnapped? What you know, what what would that be like? And that was like the whole basis for Ari and like in a way like everything in that story kind of comes from that trying to imagine that you imagine the conclusion and then you worked your way to yeah it. Uh, yeah 
And some people don't, right? There, there's like in fiction, there are like there's a whole there's a whole schools of thought. So there are people that are called plotters, and there are people that are called like seat of the pantsers or just pantsers. And so the plotter is someone like me that has the map of everything in the at the when they start, and the seat of the pantsers are like, okay, well, I have a or they call them also gardeners, where they have their characters and they have a very clear idea of their characters, and then they just sort of let their characters do stuff and they write down what they, oh, well, this character would do this here, which means this character would do this here. And then they write that down and that's their story. I, um, you know, the quintessential gardener is George R. R. Martin. Mm. And uh, I believe that the fact that his books are not finished and the disastrous uh, <laughs> last season of the show has a lot to do with that mm-hmm. lack of uh, planning in right. advance. Right. So, <clears throat> so, I guess maybe to go back to the some of the characters and to explore one of the themes in the book. Um, so Nasser is the main Palestinian protagonist, but he has a love interest, uh, Layla, who is of a different class from him. So he's kind of like a, I mean, it's, you don't really know his full background, but he's, you know, he's he's maybe of, of a more rugged yeah. Uh, class background than Leila is, who's you know proficient in many languages, is very educated and has the chance to leave Gaza. Yeah. That tension of her being able to leave and him not being able to leave that that's that that forms you know the dis- decision making on the part of the characters as well. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that for me, that element in the book was kind of personal mm-hmm. because we're uh, all three of us are kind of. Are kind of Layla, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, your no, back. <laughs> but uh, I did say I was a prof here at the beginning. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, we are from the global south, and you know, we were ourselves, or we are from families who mm-hmm. were able to leave yeah. and made the decision to leave. Um, yeah, so I guess in in the Palestinian case, I, I mean not all of the Palestinians, but especially in, in Gaza, mm-hmm. and then to, to an extent of obviously, of course, in the West Bank, what's striking is even the middle classes and like the upper class, like they, they're not able to do what other, you know, similar classes are able to do in the global South, like go in and out. Um, and that, I don't know, like that's, like we accept the fact that like poor people can't go. Right? Yeah. Like I, that doesn't have any effect on me. Does it have any effect on you guys? <laughs> I mean, you know, it uh, it does in the sa- <laughs> in the sense that I did write about. Like I do, yeah. it is something yes. that's on my mind. No, right? I'm yeah, I'm yeah. just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Even like your joke also is a meaningful joke in the sense that we, you know, we have privileges and we accept them. And mm-hmm. then as we're exercising them, we don't really think about it that much. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, so that's fair. Yeah. You put it in a kind of a funny way, but. Yeah. Yeah. And like, obviously Layla makes the choices she makes and like, you know, Nasser kind of has to yeah. deal with it in his way. Um, but to an extent, I guess that was also like being someone from the global South. I don't, I mean, I don't interact with yeah. poor people. Yeah, I mean they're from a different class, and it's yeah. Like, I mean you guys have seen that classic study, like Ryerson, um, City One and City Two and City Three. I yeah, think, and they were just talking about like how there's you know all your friends. If you when I saw that study, I was like, oh, wow, like everybody I know is from City Two or whatever, right? Yeah. Like that middle class. Like I don't know any ultra rich people, and I don't know any poor people. I mean, 
Well, I mean, you know me. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, in this context, in the Canadian context, I guess I am like low income, but that's because I'm a university student. That's just, yeah. a, it's kind of a temporary. Yeah, it's not your client. Yeah. yeah, it's not my real. Yeah. yeah. The bank account doesn't necessarily match the yeah. social and, status. And if you were, if you knew, like, what about your social circle, right? Right. Are yours, is your social circle? Right. But I mean, I, what I meant about what I said yeah. earlier is like, especially in the global south, yeah. is that like class divisions are yeah. uh, are very concrete. They're very real. Yeah. Um, no, it's I, bizarre. Yeah. It's really bizarre. Like in India, you know, I, I would hang out with my leftist friends and go to their houses and they all have servants, right? Yeah. Like everybody of our, like the equivalent of our class mm -hmm. in India has servants. Yeah domestic servants and they're just like some some of the like cooler ones some of my cooler friends would be like this is my daughter you know they'll say mm -hmm. that it's not your daughter it's your servant's right. daughter right and the other ones will just be like it's like they're not even there the, the servant's right. not even present it's just invisible he's just he's like he's doing all kinds of stuff for us in the kitchen we don't even know yeah <laughs> you know we didn't even we didn't come in, we didn't say hi to him yeah. we just walked in went into the living yeah. room and then food starts appearing and stuff right so yeah i mean that's it is it's and i and and it's true and it's true very much true in in palestine too um you know even with apartheid being some kind of equalizer mm -hmm. um there's a degree there's degrees of of equality between middle class and and poor people in Palestine but even then even with even with people having you know many of the rights that lots of us expect stripped away the experience is still different mm -hmm. the experience of apartheid is still different for poor and and relatively well off people there and like uh you know when you get into the upper echelons of the Palestinian authority they're genuinely shocked when Israel treats them like Palestinians. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still like, "What do you mean you're gonna blow up my house or whatever?" Right? Yeah. Um, my mansion. My, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, that's it's 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 and and that in that sense, like bringing it back to the writing of the fiction writing kind of aspect of it, it's. Um, that's like the context for a character, right? So like mm -hmm. Nasser's context is that he's, you know, a lower middle class, uh, doesn't speak English, right? And that mm -hmm. I make I make a lot out of that because lots of people around Nasser do speak English. Mm -hmm. And he was always like, yeah, I don't speak English, okay. <laughs> you know? right. um, and then, yeah, and then Layla has all these options. And and you, you've probably experienced this from your family, you know, or like people that are, that are not, at, you know, that didn't have the same luck that you have, right? And they're, they really want you to succeed. They really want you to go. I'm here because of my hard work. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're, of course, in your case, it's, it's merit, of course. Yeah. But like, you know, like my family in, in Kerala, like they're, they're, they're really like, and they were like this with my dad, who was the one who moved here. They were, mm -hmm. they were like, you're really smart. You should go and do stuff right. with, yeah. with that. You know, don't be, don't be stuck here like the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. Like that uh, Goodwill Hunting, right? Yeah. Uh, that was the, uh, you know, my favorite speech in that Goodwill Hunting is when Ben Affleck is like, you know, you owe it to me. You don't owe it to yourself. You owe it to me yeah. to, to go and do something. So 
That's kind of like Nasser's take. Yeah, that's yeah. Nasser's take. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if this is something you thought about actively um, or not, but I actually found the fact that it, it wasn't super surprising to me that Layla and Nasser had the kind of relationship they had uh, or that they were close because it seems to me like in particularly like in, in political situations in the region, um, those kind of class divisions, you actually, it would be a plus and a benefit if you you knew how to maneuver in between classes, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I Like, you know, I don't know, my, my grandparents and like they were involved politically in Jordan and mm -hmm. continue to be. And so like, I always have seen that. Mm -hmm. And that really came to me in the book that like all of a sudden these divisions have to actually not really um, basically yeah, intervene right in the yeah. in the in the politics um, and I don't know again yeah if, if that's something that you observed or yeah, yeah yeah I mean you know I I really I really think that I mean we're leftists right and leftists are about power to the working class and it's like we get we get these educations and we learn all this stuff and then we either exit the working class or we never were in the working class. And then we want to empower this class that we don't necessarily like have an organic connection to. But that's like, that's life, right? Yeah. That's the history of the left. It's not like, we we can't just lament that and be like, oh, well, you know, too bad. Um, every leftist movement that we've ever seen has included savvy members of the middle class or even upper middle class mm -hmm. that were able to actually connect with right. working people and and working lead working class leaders who you know became very educated and sophisticated and intellect became kind of what you know what Gramsci calls organic intellectuals mm -hmm. right so it's um you know it's it's very much a part of any kind of political action that this happens um Right-wing politics is about using working people, right? And that's they they also still have to mobilize working people, mm -hmm. and they do it in these kind of more manipulative and crass ways. Not that leftists are always <laughs> always super principled, but yeah. So yeah, I, I do. I, it was very much conscious, and. Um, you know, there's a scene in where they where there's a big assembly underground, mm -hmm. and there are people from different backgrounds, different parts of Palestine, and different parts of the social ladder um, that speak at that meeting. Right. right? Yeah. So I was actually, Amrit Kamra, you said that you were not surprised by the relationship between Nasser and Layla. For me, it was like this: this can't happen, huh? I was like, hey, this is not. It you depends know. on the context, though. I think yeah. I, that's a, that's what I mean. Is uh, I would yeah. be surprised if it was just a regular old day in a, a city in the Arab world. Um, yeah, that that would be perhaps surprising. Uh, but given that they're, you know, Layla's dad is a, a leader of the resistance and right, right. has a lot of respect for Nasser, all of a sudden, all these things sort of they're all working towards a political project and. Um, and that's that's the interesting part about working together towards these ends, right? Is like I feel like, yeah, the, the class divisions that usually, especially in a place like the Arab world, would be so stark all of a sudden soften, perhaps. Mm -hmm. There are moments. It's it's a moment in time and it's like a historical moment where things become fluid and then they stop being fluid. And that's another, 
you know, that Akbal Ahmed wrote about this, about Algeria, right? Like mm-hmm. how specific Islamic things were not, it was more about resistance or about nationalism than it was about Islam, but it was like these Islamic symbols that were appropriated. And it's... Well, that came to bite them in the ass eventually. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. But I don't know if it was that or... Uh, yeah, there was lots of other things. There was lots of other things. Yeah. I, I, You know, it's really interesting because because I am, as a fiction reader, fan, I'm really into strategy. Mm-hmm. And, like, oh, that's that's politically true, too. Like, I love... I've, I'm fascinated by, like, the Fidel Castros or the Ho Chi Minhs or the Emiliano Zapatas of history where they're like, how did they do that? How did they know? Like, there's these moments where they're just... They make every decision right, and then they just have these incredible successes against overwhelming odds. And you're just like, how did that? How did that all come together? How did that happen? But the more that um, these days, I, I'm I'm less I'm less inclined to think that strategy is so important, mm. and and it's like a lot of things could really not have gone any other way, um, given the kind of layout of the historical forces in the world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like your your point of your reply about Algeria is like there were a lot. It's true that 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 didn't work out <laughs> quite the way that they hoped in the '60s. But that's there were a lot of a lot of things that were not going their way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, ma- it makes you think that you know, like after the siege is broken, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like that's. What is the line that one of the characters in the Battle of Algiers has? You know, he's talking to the uh, the main character and he's telling him about the struggle. And the, I think the main character is kind of kind of complaining. And he's like, "Well, the str- the real struggle is going to start after we win mm-hmm. against the French." Yeah. Um, and the Palestinians, of course, are still at that co- colonized stage. So yeah. Yeah, and I mean a lot of I think a lot of strategically speaking, a lot of the problems that that have happened in the Palestinian strategy of liberation have come because Palestinian authority types have sort of assumed that they were in a post mm-hmm. liberation situation in nineteen ninety as of nineteen ninety three, mm-hmm. right, with mm-hmm. Oslo. And it was like, No, you're not <laughs> and uh and they wanted to behave like a state and they didn't have any of the any of the powers or, or capacities that a state would have had, they were still colonized. Um, but you, what was the, there was another part of that thing you just said that was interesting. The struggle, like after the siege is broken. Oh yeah, after the siege is broken. Yeah, you know, I, I had an idea for a sequel, but it was like, if I have, if I, if I keep the siege broken, it becomes really increasingly disconnected from reality. Mm-hmm. And so, but I also didn't want to write a sequel where right at the beginning, they Israel reimposes the siege. Cause yeah. I'm like, then the whole book was for nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm, there may not be a sequel, <laughs> <laughs> but I have this whole idea of exploring actually the Syrian civil war in a sequel. So like Ari goes back to Israel and then he's working f- for Israel again, um, you know, and he's in uh, the Golan Heights, you mm-hmm. know, helping ISIS in Syria. And then Nasser would end up in Lebanon fighting alongside the Assad regime in 
in Syria. And so they'd be, they'd, they'd, you'd have both characters again on both sides of, mm. which would be kind of neat. But, um, and then I could add like a Kurdish character in Northern Syria. And, and I, you know, there's lots of stuff I could have done, but, but then if Gaza's free, it's a totally different geopolitical situation. Right. Which. Well, but I guess my point was that, or part of my point would be that even after the siege is broken, you know, is Gaza free? I mean, this obviously the situation would be like far better. Yeah. I mean, right now, what is it like up to 40% of kids are like malnourished. Yeah. Like there's no access to like clean yeah. drinking water. Um, and well, I guess there is access, but it's like very expensive. So like those things, like even just looking at the pictures from like Ramallah, mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like, okay, this is like, I could live here comfortably, yeah. you know, like yeah, things function, like obviously like it, there's all this humiliation and horrible yeah. sort of security. Uh, so the Ramallah being in the West Bank, um, you know, but the situation there isn't ideal either. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot, I guess, that one has to bear even while being hopeful. Yeah, so the siege can be broken. Yeah. And then there's all this other shit. Yeah, exactly. And you're totally right. I mean, in a way, I didn't I didn't do the maximum kind of imagination that I could have done, which would have been like, you know, maybe one state, democratic state for everybody, this kind of South Africa solution for for the Middle East, right? I didn't do that. I just I settled for just the siege being broken. Mm -hmm. And uh and that, yeah, like the siege hasn't, you know, the occupation has gone on much longer than the siege, right? The mm -hmm. siege is not, it's like a decade and a half or two decades old. Mm. So it should really be seen as something that's not like intractable. It was imposed a little while ago and it could easily be broken. But yeah, you're totally right that if we were back into the pre-siege status quo that would still be you'd still have occupation you'd still have apartheid you'd still have all these um mm -hmm. yeah all these massive injustices going on i mean i have one question but i feel like maybe i don't know if we kind of already went over it uh, but the idea of writing like a political novel so something it's a novel has to be obviously you know there's characters and there's feelings involved and there's everything and i, I We've touched on this a lot, but um, to find the balance between that and trying to convey a, pol a particular political point, which like you were saying before, uh, most artists will mm -hmm. shy away from um, because they want the, the, the art to shine through. Yeah. So how does that process work for you? I think for me, it's more about discovering how much politics is a part of life. So it's like, it's less about inserting politics into a into a story about life it's 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 instead it's about politics is a part of our lives too and it's and then so then it becomes more about overcoming the depoliticization mm -hmm. of the way that our lives are portrayed right it's i, I also like <laughs> you guys are going to love this another idea that i want to do Maybe you guys can come on board as consultants. But I have this idea for like a comedy, maybe a romantic comedy screenplay about this university that's like always on strike. 
<laughs> and there would be, you'd have different characters that are in like, you know, there'd be like a, a guy from the faculty, a very handsome guy from the faculty union. Mm-hmm. And then there'd be some, you know, grad students and then there'd be some undergrads and, and it would be like a very political story and there would be lots of labor <laughs> stuff in there. Yeah. But oh, and then of course we'd have to have some admin university administrators. A tragic comedy. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> More like a what do you call it? absurd a theater right. of the absurd, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, it, for our listeners, uh, Justin's talking about York University. No, well, I didn't say <laughs> I didn't say anything about that. But you know, there would be there's things that happen on the picket lines. You know, there's like so many dramas. There's I I thought like if it was a TV series. You could have a whole episode that was just in the Senate chamber and just like speeches in the Senate chamber and like, you know, the the union reps quest to actually be allowed to speak and all the procedures they do to try to stop them from speaking. See, I'm laughing just (laughs) thinking about it. Um, And so and that that's a that's a for me, it's an example of like people's lives here are super politicized and and the late labor and and labor rights and the labor struggle is a big part. Like it took over everybody's life, life here, right? And uh, and you're yeah, talking about the recent strike, the 2018, yeah, yeah. But or the 2014 or the 2008 or the 2001 or right. whatever, yeah, yeah. Like, um, so yeah, and that, that, see, it could be a multi-season, <laughs> a multi-season uh, show because you could have like the next strike being slightly different from the. So, but the point again, just to get back to the main point I'm making is, you wouldn't see that in. Um, you, why don't we see that? Why don't we see any dramas or shows about labor? Like, it's hard to write about labor in an exciting way. You'd have to. They always like have a murder or something. And also like university, they never write about university life except to have like professors having affairs with students or like stealing their intellectual ideas or something. So there's no like, but. There is the second season of The Wire, but you're right, there are. Yeah, but but they're criminals. See see how they're criminals? Well, yeah, yeah. it's complicated. And then there's that tanker full of dead bodies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, it, there's a there's a big criminal uh, element in the in the second season of The Wire. The mm-hmm. union is always connected to, that. and that's how it is in pop culture. In American culture, unions are mafia. Unions are connected to the mafia. Right, right. So like, there is a there, <laughs> there's a pretty funny novel, you guys, uh, called Organize or Die. Mm. <laughs> it's a, it's like a it's a murder mystery. But it's very sympathetic to the labor movement. And she goes into this plant and people keep getting killed. Like her, the previous organizer come was murdered. Oh. So she's oh, goes geez. to she's got to continue organizing. Uh, but it's a funny, it's like a kind yeah. of a funny mystery. She's gotta continue the organizing process, even though her previous counterpart was was killed. And so uh it's and it's it's pretty good. You know, the union's not the mafia and so I, I thought it was good that way. But like a universe, imagine a university union story that wasn't based on profs, you know, taking advantage of their students or unions being part of the mafia. Yeah. And there's a reason you don't see it, but it's not, the reason is not because people's lives are not political and that it would be about inserting political stuff into people's lives. It's because people's lives are as they're portrayed in art, are depoliticized right. kind of deliberately. Right. But also, like, I find, you know, despite being a socialist and obviously dis- despite having, like, this 
sense that I'm concerned about class and class conflict. Um, you know, and even the fact that you've written this book, which is about not about a class conflict, but about a, a, a nationalist struggle. That, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's harder to imagine, I mean, for, for myself, certainly, that class conflict, it, it, it sort of has the same kind of profound inspiration for me that something like yeah. uh, an anti-colonial struggle does. Yeah, I know, it's a challenge, but I don't think it's... I, I think that's more because we don't have the artistic models mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than because it's not dramatic or at least I like the I keep going back to it as a comedy. I really think the York the York strike story would have to be a comedy right. to 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 work. You couldn't make it a drama. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not life or death, right? A very few in very few cases is it life or death. Right. It's much more like a little bit less crappy or a little bit more crappy yeah. <laughs> um yeah yeah i mean i like sorry to bother you came out yeah mm-hmm. and i, I like oh you haven't seen it no okay. well, really then i won't spoil it, it. Oh, um, you can spoil it a little i don't it's it's a pretty big spoiler because like my main gripe with it is sort of the the twist okay um but you'll see what i mean when you watch it is that like i wish that they had just mm. it was just a labor Right. Film of it. Because that I find that pretty inspired. Like I find like the the idea of like collective struggle and people yeah. winning things together, like I find that shit pretty inspiring. And there's yeah. a lot of movies that aren't life and death and you still really get in, like invested. Have you guys seen the Trotsky? <laughs> I haven't seen that I yet. I have not. <laughs> okay, so there's this guy and he thinks he's the reincarnation of Trotsky. Oh my gosh. And he's like super earnest, so that's the joke is that he's really really earnest. So he goes to high school and he goes to the student union and he thinks it's a union, but it's not, right? It's a student union. Right. He's like, "So I'm here for the student union. Uh you know, when do we go on strike and what what are we fighting for?" And they're like, "No, dude, it's that's not it's not that kind of union." And so he he you know, he sincerely starts to organize the people for us for a student union. Mm-hmm. And that's like the that's the show, and it's a comedy. Nice, but it's you know it's it's cute. It's just yeah. he's a little bit delusional. So mm-hmm. again, like it. I mean, obviously, we can identify with a leftist that's a little bit delusional. Um, and I, I, you know, there are all, there are things that I'll get kind of close to to it, and I I think it could make it. You know, I think if if we had like ten of those that were really good, it would make a cultural difference too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, reality, in this case, reality seems to be uh, moving faster than fiction because especially what's happening in the US. Yeah. um, Yeah. With uh, Bernie Sanders and the movement that's kind of building around him. Yeah. So maybe we'll get some working class fiction soon. Yeah. 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 That'd be great. Some new Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. See, but Grapes of Wrath is such a downer, I thought. It was such a downer. And it was also like really. yeah, it was a little bit dark and kind of tragic. It was, it was right? pretty dark, yeah, pretty gritty. I mean, you know, but it it's, it's counts. Yeah, it counts. Um, it's not as bad as the jungle. That's the other classic, the American working class. Was that even fiction? Upton Sinclair. Sinclair. Uh, well, it was a novel. Yeah, I remember not. I didn't know it was fiction. It's like meat packing plant. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. I remember the descriptions, but I don't remember the plot. I don't remember like any a, plot or any characters. There's a Lithuanian guy, uh, Hurgis, I think his name is. Mm. And then like everything in his life just goes yeah. horribly wrong working in the meatpacking plant in, in Chicago. I bet. Yeah. 
So it's just tragedy after tragedy. And or like The Invisible Man, right? By Ellison. Oh, I haven't read the entire thing. But he gets in, he's black, he gets in with the communists, but then they, you know, turn out to be no good. Oh. You know? Damn it. <laughs> Speaking of communists, um, I actually had a question about something about a communist because it's interesting your your characters are uh, Islamists, but they one of them at least quotes a communist poet quite often. Yeah, um, he's but, an old, well, several, one of them is an old commie who is right. kind of pretending to be. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So one of the characters is- But a, the other, you're like, you're talking about one of the fighters. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. Ilyas, who's young, one of the young men in yeah. Nasser's crew. He is uh, often sort of seen quoting Mahmoud Darwish, mm-hmm. who's the Palestinian national national poet, I guess. Is that yeah, how you guys I describe him? Sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I I just wanted, (laughs) I thought when if you hang around Palestinians for long enough, especially the kind of political ones that we know, you know, you're going to hear Darwish, you're going to hear about Darwish. So I just thought there's got to be that, it's got to be somewhere. And I thought like, what if there's just this guy that's, you know, constantly just quoting it, everybody's like, I know, all right, all right, Darwish, good. I guess it's interesting that these uh, national poets, they tend to be communists, you know, like, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I guess the, the problem with socialist and, and left wing movements is that they've, they've really, really only succeeded in the context of struggles that have to do with nationalism, which is interesting because nationalism, of course, like hides the class struggle yeah even i I remember reading about Mm. uh the chinese communists and like when they won in 1949 like mao's what mao said was china has stood up right right he didn't say the working class stood up so it's it yeah you're totally right it's like nationalism seems to be the more powerful emotional force Mm -hmm. yeah all right well on that note (laughs) (laughs) doesn't look so good for us but you know hey yeah well thanks for coming on the podcast justin this has been a really great discussion thank you thank you both thanks to our audience for tuning in to this patreon exclusive segment of the oats podcast your support means a lot to us we'll see you again soon bye bye